June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her RC. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degree's in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it anyway. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it. Hello and welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about voom Victorian literature. This is episode 12, the end of the beginning. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Yokohama Theater Group, or YTG, a nonprofit theater company based in Japan. If you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. On this show, we have four wayward readers, including myself. In the first 11 episodes, we sat down, talked about the week's assigned chapters from Wuthering Heights, made presentations, which we called reader responses, and answered questions to compete for points. We were refereed by Ms. Charlotte, an expert on the subject. So, on today's show, now that the book is complete, what did we each think of the book? What has this journey meant to each of us? The readers each make our final responses. Then, uh... Oops, I got this in the wrong order, but uh, then Miss Charlotte will tally up our points from the previous 11 episodes and declare a winner. What will that person win? Who the fuck knows? We're flying by the seat of our pants here. Okay, our wayward readers are in order of hair length. Judy Ito, Assistant Artistic Director of the Okama Theatre Group and Bouncy Hair Person. Thank you. It's my hula hair. You, you just like Vidal sassooned us there by pulling it out of its little its tie. <laughs> my bun, yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, myself. My COVID cut has now turned into a ponytail, and I can't cut it until we finalize costumes for YTG's upcoming production of Wuthering Heights. Uh, next is Dr. Ms. Emmy Doe, who, despite the photo I have of her on the website, as of the time of this recording, actually has shorter hair right now. Uh, actually, your hair looks longer. Is it longer than... Is, your, is it being held back by your headphones? Yeah. Mmm. Mm. Nice. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, and I shaved... The entire underside. So it is shorter. Yeah, it is. It is shorter. Um, and finally, Daniel Wishes, award-winning puppeteer and so far not award-winning podcaster, but I, it'll happen soon, I know. Uh, he actually has short hair right now. Um, maybe I'll put the photo in the... No, um, that was... I haven't gotten a haircut since 2005. I just have naturally short hair. This is as, this is as much as it grows. Wow, it's like... Wow, that's that's impressive. Um, I thought you were keeping it court, short and cool for summer. It's yeah, it's it's great in summer, just the way it is. Winter though, you know, but that's what hats are for. So. <laughs> um, of course, Miss Charlotte Sampson has the longest locks of all, rivers of them flowing over her shoulders as usual. Welcome everyone. Let's get not reading this time. 
All right. So this is probably going to be my favorite episode so far because I have to do like zero work for this one. Um, this is everyone just letting it all out, giving me your final thoughts on Withering Heights as a novel, as an experience, as a journey. That's really, that's really corny, but, um, wow, I got to pick somebody to go first. Um, does anyone want to volunteer to go first? You don't get extra points for doing so, but. I'll go first because I'm always not confident about my response. And if I say it first, then (laughs) other people can dispute it and I don't have to worry about it. Okay. I'll accept that logic. Uh, Go ahead, Amy. So first, I really appreciated every week hearing other people's thoughts because they always shown a different perspective on what we talked on what I read. And so I might be baffled by a situation or feeling particularly frustrated by a character. And it was really fun to come on a podcast and then hear how I might be misinterpreting the entire situation. Um, So that was really, really fun for me. And I don't think I would have stuck with it if it wasn't for the podcast. So I'm really glad that um, we got to do that. Other thing that I found really surprising in looking back on the experience was that now that I've finished it, I kind of feel like I should reread it. I won't because it was such a painful experience. But I like upon like thinking about it, I'm like, why did I not enjoy this book so much? And I realized it was because I couldn't like it didn't fit it wasn't i couldn't put it in a box like as a romance it sucked you know as like a character development thing it it like you didn't want you hated all the characters so like there's no character that you were gunning for as like like as an adventure story it wasn't an adventure story as a historical fiction you like couldn't trust what anything any character was saying so like the whole unreliable narrative thing wasn't helpful like and so it was just really unsettling because it just didn't fit into any the, like w- prescribed way of um experiencing a book which i think is really cool theoretically <laughs> and i yeah but experientially was was like just not pleasant so um yeah that's my big take on it um and i maybe that's why everybody's so smitten with it and like why everybody keeps saying it's like a classic and this is a whatever like i i feel like i've heard about weathering heights my entire life and i'm reading it i was like why is this considered such an amazing book um but maybe that's what it was it was just anyway and i read a bunch of other people's takes on it and it seems i'm not the only one who hated everybody it's like a very common opinion so that's that's my 18 cents that i'm offering (laughs) all right uh thank you emmy who wants to go next i was thinking we would all do our little presentation and then we can do sort of a round robin discussion i can go next all right judy let's hear it um well mine i wrote a couple things, which is more about comments on the book yeah. instead of like a full review. Makes sense. Um, am I getting graded on this one, Charlie? I was going to give a little bit of a grade. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I didn't really... Um, Most, mostly just for fun. But. Right, right. I wasn't really focused on getting points or anything. So you, you can, but um, So it's not that formal. But um, I picked out like three three words that kind of captivated Withering Heights for me. One, the first one is violent. I think this is one of like the most violent books I've ever read. It felt like I was like trapped in Yorkshire and like everyone was either screaming or being silent to each other. Um, Heathcliff was very abused and abusive. Um, and... From the dogs to abusive mind games, I found this story to be more about the cycle of abuse rather than the relationship between Catherine and Heathcliff, which many people consider the core of Wuthering Heights. 
Um, similar to Emmy and probably mostly everyone here, I despise more or less every character in the book. <laughs> I kept rooting for redemption to be found within the characters, was constantly disappointed. Even the romantic relationship between Catherine and Heathcliff that um, many seem to obsess about for this book, I couldn't root for them to be together because they're just both selfish and offensive and inconsiderate. Or I just wanted them to be together so that all the cruelty can be over. Uh, the only emotions and relations I've found to be from a somewhat loving place or human is Heathcliff and Harriton and Harriton and Kathy, which we talked about. Um, one thing that I thought would be interesting to discuss or what I wanted Charlotte to kind of give a comment on is I was talking to um, someone who's actually going to be part of the Wuthering Heights production for YTG, Jesse, And she pointed, um, She, we were talking about how Nellie wrote the story in a way that made seem like Harriton was a child. Like when he, at the end he's 23, but the way that she describes Harriton, how he was like playing with his beard, it's like when I reached the point where Nellie said she, she he was 23. I was like, I thought he was like much younger than that. So that was kind of like interesting or kind of speaks about the way about their relationship and how Nellie saw the relationship. And I am still decoding on how Nellie thinks about the events and everyone. Um, the third one is ghosts. I really like the ghost discussion we had during one of the episodes. Um, is the ghost real or is it a mental illness or something else? Um, I think it's more to add, now that we've read it, I think it's more to add context and what the characters felt after death or how after they uni reunited, rather than a discussion of whether Brompton is spiritual or not. But I found it interesting that it was one of the elements um, that the Japanese film adaption played um, with which I haven't saw it yet, but I, I read some articles on. So hopefully I'll do a movie, movie adapt, uh, review on that in our next episode. And Great. that's it. Okay. Thank you very much, Judy. So it's between Daniel and Andrew. Who wants to go next? I, I, can, I can go next. Um, what, what's that face for, Daniel? <laughs> I just wondered why you wanted me to go last, that's all. Uh, because I'm thinking you're going to be better than mine, so I want to close with a good one. This is me. That's, mine is producer. definitely going to be the dumbest one, if that's what you want to be last. If, as long as it's entertaining, it works for me. All right. Uh, so, uh, I started this podcast for a couple reasons. Uh, the first is that I was, I, I'm going to be working on, I was, okay, Tense is weird because the show will air after the, sh this will air after my show has happened, but it's in the future for me now. I'm going to be working on an adaptation. I am working on an adaptation of Wuthering Heights as part of the Oklahoma Theater Group September show. And after reading chapter one way back in May or whenever it was, I knew I was going to need a serious motivating factor, not only to keep reading, but to keep reading carefully. I mean, not just skimming, but taking copious notes. That's one of my motivations for this. The second reason is I really feel like over the years, I've, I, maybe I've given Victorian literature a short shrift. Um, you know, I've done some reading and attempted readings of novels written during the sweep, the huge Victorian era, and loved exactly none of them. Uh, some, like A Christmas Carol, Carol, were kind of tolerable, but that's mainly because it's the only Dickens book you can read in one sitting, and it's also too small to stun a burglar with. Uh, Dracula's, I guess, also technically Victorian, but it's also kind of short, and more importantly, it's quite pulpy, which at least, like, so stuff happens. Um... Meanwhile, uh, attempts at breaching the walls, or rather, uh, the opening chapters of Bleak House, Orly Farm, Great Expectations, etc., etc., were made, have been made, uh, but they were successfully repelled by the excesses and manners of the typical Victorian novel. I remain puzzled as to how anyone could love these books, my father included, who was an unstoppable reader of books from this era. So, on the first of these two points, I did accomplish my goal. I have not only finished Wuthering Heights, but I have reams of notes that I can use. And better still, I have the teachings of Miss Charlotte's and the brain droppings of my fellow readers stinking up the place. My 
Retention of the book's details has definitely been, been enhanced by the discussion and homework preparation, as well as just from editing the podcast for hours on end and then listening to each episode to make sure there are no major editing mistakes. So yeah, mission accomplished. On the second point, despite having made it over the aforementioned wall and sacking the town now, my impression of Victorian literature in general, but especially like serious literature, has sadly not yet been reformed. Uh, the things that drove me away from it before, the length, the $20 words, the fussiness, the portentousness are still there. And while I enjoyed the experience of making this podcast with you guys, I can't say I was ever really that eager to get back to reading the next set of chapters. Uh, to echo what Emmy said, how Wuthering Heights is anybody's favorite novel is beyond me. Not a single character is sympathetic. So I'm repeating you right here. This is sort of what I did through the whole pro podcast. You say something and then I repeat it. Um, uh, no, not a single character is sympathetic to the reader by the end of the novel. Not even, and, and even the ones who aren't, they're not even like unsympathetic in an interesting way, like Shakespeare's Richard III, for instance. Um, the most interesting action, like what happens to Heathcliff on the moors before his death, or how Mr. Earnshaw comes to bring Heathcliff back to Wuthering Heights from the hive of scum and villainy known as Liverpool all this stuff happens out of sight of any of the narrating characters. Ghosts are promised, but then like nowhere to be found. Uh, I don't mind having my expectations subverted. I am like the only person I know who liked The Last Jedi for exactly the reason that it kept doing stuff I wasn't expecting and couldn't predict. But you know what? It still had lightsaber fights and spaceships. You know, the characters weren't total jerks who were just terrible to each other. And then Kylo Ren decides to give up and die because something that happens off screen that we never know about. Jesus ever loving fuck, god damn it, Emily Bronte. Thank you for that candid uh, opinion, Andrew. Okay, Daniel, it's all yours. Take it away. All right. Well, thank you for. I really enjoyed hearing everybody's opinion on this book. Um, it was nice of you all to go before me, giving me time to write mine down. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it seems uh, many of you, or maybe all of you, didn't quite enjoy reading this book as as much as, you know, literary tradition and, and classic book lists where Wuthering Heights is like number 10 on books you must read. Um, it, it doesn't seem like you... I'm just talking gibberish now. Sorry. Let me let me regather my ADD brain and try again. Take so the time, it seems, Daniel. So it seems y'all didn't enjoy reading this book too much. So I guess I need to be the outlier and say that I really enjoyed reading this book. Wuthering Heights truly is a classic, if by definition a classic is just a really old book. <laughs> Wuthering Heights <laughs> isn't bad. It's better than bad. It's <laughs> meh. <laughs> It's fine for a first novel. It's not on the level of quality of Judy Bloom. On the other hand, it is a first novel, and Judy Bloom's first novel was called The One in the Middle is a Green Kangaroo. So it took her a while before she got to classics like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, Deanie, and Superfudge. Superfudge. But maybe if Emily hadn't died at such a tragic young age, she would have gone on to write much better books. Who are we to say? Well, we do know that in February 15th of 1848, Emily sent a letter to her editor, T.C. Newby, suggesting that she was well on her way to finishing her second book. Unfortunately, the details of this manuscript and the manuscript itself has been lost to history. Or has it? <laughs> what if I was to tell you that I not only know the name of Emily Bronte's next book, the synopsis, but also the 12 books that she would have gone on to write after that. That's right. Emily Bronte's next book, After Wuthering Heights, was going to be called Foxworth Hall. The story takes place in a dismal... The story takes place in a dismal manner named Foxworth Hall, where a group of children are forced to live in an attic by their abusive mother and are severely abused. It all takes place in a gloomy house. There's incest, rape, a dark family history is revealed... It's all the stuff you love from Wuthering Heights. The lead character is even named Kathy. But you might know this book better under the title that was eventually published under Flowers in the Attic in 1979. <gasps> What's that, Daniel? Are you suggesting that after Emily Bronte died, she was reincarnated and came back in the form of American novelist V.C. Andrews? Yes, I am. <laughs> so if you're craving more of the thrills and spills you loved in Wuthering Heights, look no farther than the works of Cleo Victoria Andrews. 
Or if you're not a psychopath, why not read more books by Judy Blue? <laughs> Freckle Juice, Fudgemania, and Double Fudge are all classics in the sense of actually good books. And if you're looking something for a little if you're looking for something a little bit more spicy, why not check out her erotic novel, Wifey? And if you're looking for something more contemporary, a real tearjerker, why not check out her most recent adult novel from 2015 in the unlikely event? Judy Bloom, a much better writer than V.C. Andrews and Emily Bronte put together. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel, I guess. <laughs> well, have you read so Flowers I... in the Attic, Charlotte? <laughs> Feels no, very broad. Not well. You should check it out. It's pretty Bronte. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. 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 You know what? Fine. I'll bite. I will check it out. Fair is fair. Just, um, just to be clear, I'm not recommending it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Okay. Um. So if I were to sort of take the temperature of the room, um, seems like a common thread was that nobody really liked Wuthering Heights. That's okay. You're allowed to not like Wuthering Heights. It's, I will be frank, it's a hard book to like. I think, though, there's a difference between a book you don't enjoy and a book that is just bad in terms of craftsmanship. and. To me, Wuthering Heights seems like it's mostly just unpleasant to read. It does have some issues with the craftsmanship. I think it was, Andrew, you pointed out all of those $20 words, and boy, Emily Bronte was kind of in love with them. Um, I think even more so than... Yeah, I'm trying to think of other sort of flowery purple prose writing Victorian authors, and I don't think she's the most arch no but oh no not by a long I shot think it i don't think it does sort of impede on on the fiction of her frame narrative a little bit i mean yes we know that nelly dean is one of the most read folks i was i have to say that the criticism that none of the characters are likable is first of all fair and I think more or less everyone said that. I mean, Daniel, you kind of... Yours veered off into something entirely unrelated <laughs> to Wuthering Heights. And I'm going to say right now, before I give everyone else their grade, you got a D plus for that. <laughs> Daniel, you gave me a near panic attack when you started going off on manuscript evidence of Emily Bronte's second novel, because, yeah, that would be a huge scholarly discovery. And I was like, oh, shit, did somebody release a groundbreaking article that I've not heard of? But no, it was your bullshit V.C. Andrews tangent. I mean, this is this is like I've uncovered a huge mystery from, from the history of literature. I mean. I'd be surprised if I don't get a Pulitzer for this, frankly. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Okay, Daniel, I'll give you a C minus <laughs> because of your commitment to the absurd fiction uh, of your little presentation. And also because I too like Judy Bloom. Freckle Juice was one of my favorite. Right. <laughs> which, which, if you had to choose between Freckle Juice and Wuthering Heights. <laughs> Well, if I wanted to write an article, it would probably be on Wuthering Heights rather than Freckle Juice. If I wanted to sit and unwind with something I could plow through in like 15 minutes, it would be Freckle Juice. Well, I don't think you're looking at Freckle Juice deeply <laughs> Are enough, you challenging me to a, to a literary <laughs> interpretation off on, on Freckle Juice? A freckle juice? I think I, I think I am. I'm throwing in the gauntlet. I think, I think, I think we might have to do a juice. bonus episode to cover um, that. We're getting into the weeds here. Um, oh, delightful weeds, though. So All right, yes, go on. I'm just going to sort of go in order and give some grades, and then we can have a more open discussion if there's anything else at all that we want to say. Um, so, Emmy. Mm -hmm. Um. I gave your presentation a C plus. Now, you were a little bit light on interpretation of the novel 
you stuck mostly to your own sort of gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And this is valid. It's important to sort of get a sense of the, the visceral response that we get to literature. It's fallen out of favor um, as, a, as a literary theory, though there is a school of literary theory called reader response. And I'm just sort of going off the dome from what I remember in like my literary theory courses. Um, so I don't remember all the details out of hand, also because my memory is very, very poor. The idea of a, of a reader response critique is sort of every instance of reading a book is an experience of a, of a single person who brings their own experience and knowledge to bear on it. And so if you want to analyze a work of literature, the best way to do it is in the context of who is reading it and when. Um, I think, and again, if I fuck this up and somebody else has a better reference, I think that a lot of the founding principles and development of reader response was Stanley Fish. And I think, I'm trying to remember the name of the essay where he really gets into it. I think it's, is there a text in this class? Is that Stanley Fish? Sorry, I'm doing some Googling. You know you're not going to get an argument on this, right? Like, No, I know, that's true. <laughs> if somebody has a better article on this... <laughs> You've been with us for you've been with us for twelve weeks now. I I don't think you okay, know by yeah, now. None point. of us have JSTOR um, at our fingertips. Point. But Emmy, what I was going to say <laughs> is that your your sort of observation that you felt like you wanted or you should reread it, but didn't want to. Um, that's kind of how I feel about a lot of the books that I have to read many, many times over and over again, whenever I have to revisit them, whether it's for thesis, research, or just when I'm teaching a class. Um, I will say that if you do get an opportunity to reread Wuthering Heights um, for another podcast, for, another for, podcast. for a spin-off podcast of your own, I don't know, um, as you're going through it a second time, and this is sort of my advice for for a reread, try to keep in mind how it ends and whether there is any degree of foreshadowing in the novel, which is something that I didn't really get into as we were going through it. Um, because foreshadowing, the tricky thing about foreshadowing is that in some cases requires that you have already read the text to recognize it. Some foreshadowing is very, very obvious. Um, I think one of them is the broken window, for example, in the very early chapters when Lockwood fucking Muppet just punches right through it. And of course, how does Heathcliff die? Well, we know that he dies with the window open. There is no blood pouring from the broken skin. The implication is that he has actually cut himself on the window, which Lockwood managed not to do. So there are little hints of foreshadowing that I think a reread would bring out a bit more. Um, so, moving on. Judy, your presentation, I gave an A. Yay! I think it might be my first A. Also, you were the only one who kind of did your homework. Um, <laughs> oh, Andrew, I see you looking and, and objecting. You did your homework, too. You got a B plus. We'll get to yours later. <laughs> I read all 13 novels by V.C. Andrews in preparation for this. And if this were a podcast on V.C. Andrews, right. you would have gotten... No, no, you probably still would have gotten... Yeah. If, he, if he read 13 it, novels by V.C. Andrews, I think that explains a lot. I think his you brains are basically know. leaking out his ears right now. To be fair, <laughs> Judy's the only one that's supposed to be graded on this assignment, by the by, because she hasn't done as many assignments as the rest of us. Just saying. That's true. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I mean, we've got, everyone's got <laughs> the their right now, so I mean, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, I like that you, I like that you brought up the cycle of abuse. I know that we talked about this a little bit as we were going through in the episodes, but I think it. So it's a couple of times that I've read Wuthering Heights. Now, every time I come back to Wuthering Heights, I'm just struck anew by how vicious. Not just Heathcliff, but everyone. Well, maybe not everyone. Let's say, okay, how vicious most of the characters get when they have any modicum of authority or control. If I were to sum up the whole mechanism 
for how human misery is just exacerbated in Wuthering Heights. It has to do with control, with the fact that, and I think you also brought up the issue of isolation, how even when you were reading it, you felt like this sort of tangible feeling of being trapped, kind of like everyone at Wuthering Heights is, whether they're living under alcoholic abuse of Hindley Earnshaw, or whether it's under Heathcliff, even Thrushcross Grange has this degree of just isolation and control. And mm-hmm. I think that you did very well to focus on those as, as very significant issues the novel deals with. And again, I've said before, they didn't really have the term, the psychological terms that we have. They didn't have a term for the cycle of abuse, but I think that reading the text through that lens is a good way of making it somewhat relatable to a modern audience. I, I think that one of the reasons it might have seemed a little bit odd or barbaric to its initial readership is that that degree of domestic abuse wasn't really talked about in polite company, unless it was a sort of, you know, very cartoonish evil kind of thing. This is what we see in Wuthering Heights is excessive, but you can kind of see how the situations develop organically. And so I do think that it's it's an impressive work that looks at abuse as a cycle, not necessarily a, an individual human failing, not necessarily one per single person's evil, but the sort of aggregate of their abuses endured carrying on to the next generation. And so, yeah, I was glad that your presentation touched on that. So, yeah, I think it's a fair question asking why anyone loves Victorian literature. Because, yeah, it's long. There's a reason for that, though. And again, my memory really sucks. But did we discuss the sort of material conditions of Victorian publishing a little bit? I think we did. I'm not sure if it I'm not sure if it aired, but I've definitely discussed it. Mm. Well, anyway, just just in case it, it, it didn't air, long texts. Remember that, remember that we kind of experience time on a different scale from the way that Victorians experienced it? Um, they had a lot more time to kill in between releases of their favorite novels, and a lot of them were released sort of volume by volume. Wuthering Heights was... The Bronte's offerings were different, and they were released all at once. Um, but it meant that people had more of an appetite for longer works, because they were usually experiencing, experiencing them in an episodic form. And so when we get a Big Fat Dickens book, what we are seeing is not so much one book, but the collected cycle of shorter segments of the story that would have been dished out piecemeal um yeah, I should, it's a very different way of publishing absolutely i should say i don't have it's, a problem with long books per se i have a problem with books that feel like they're needlessly long like mm, there's okay. extra detail added in order to like pad out the length and wuthering heights actually didn't suffer from that problem particularly um that was not one well, of the one thing to keep in mind in terms of why Victorian literature has these long descriptive passages. I want to be careful in the way that I say this because I don't want it to sound like glossing over details or let's say a narrative paucity was never done in the 19th century, but the notion of leaving things to subtext, keeping the narrative short and sweet and not relying so much on explicit description, but allowing the narrative action to sort of give the reader a chance to fill in the details, that's a, almost a kind of literary technology. I think technology is a bad word. It's a, it's a literary technique that had to be specifically invented in a way. Like, if we look at sort of the genealogy of the novel, like how did it come to be the way it was? It initially grew out of this really weird sort of hybrid literature of the the personal non-fictional confession and like an adventure 
epic story. Like, fiction up until novels showed up on the scene was mostly handled in, like, non- like non-prose, it was mostly handled in like long poetic sagas. And so because novels have this genealogy of wanting to give the reader a full and frank account of how things were, like that's that's kind of the idea of Robinson Crusoe. Um one of, if not the first English novels, um, is that ostensibly it's an account by Robinson Crusoe of the time he spent on the island, and he spares no detail because the the notion is that ostensibly this is a real person giving a real testimony of something that really happened to them. Everyone knew it was fake, but not really. There were some actual readers even at the time that were like, I want to meet this Robinson Crusoe <laughs> fellow, and then had to sort of be given the bad news that he wasn't actually real. It's um, like the people who watched the first movie and screamed as the train came towards the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the idea that literature even can be snappier and you can omit sort of setting the the, the scene, as it were, or to, to borrow a phrase from, from Dickens at the, at the beginning of Hard Times, strike the keynote to sort of give overviews of this is the setting, these are the people, let me describe them before we let them get on their merry way and sort of let the narrative speak to who and how what they are and how they act. That kind of technique doesn't really start to show up until... Yeah, I don't want to give too precise a number here. Like, I don't want to give too precise a year. But we start to see that more in what we would think of as modern literature, um, sort of starting in the early 20th century, and especially sort of after World War I. That's... That's really when narrative became a lot more sparse in terms of detail. So with that sort of paradigm shift, it is absolutely fair to say that modern readers will have some trouble with the long-windedness of authors from sort of before the 20th century, because that sort of narrative brevity that we're now used to, where a lot of it is left to subtext or reader imagination, was not, let's say, not as developed a technique. I also do like your observation that there are quite a few events that happen off-camera, so to speak. It's not even off-camera, it's like off-narrative, because, yeah. you know, it's not, an, it's, not like, um, it's not like a Greek tragedy thing, mm. where events happen out of the scene and then someone comes in and describes them. Because in a novel, that that's actually okay because you're kind of you kind of get to see it through their eyes. It just we just it we, it doesn't even it's a mystery. It's, you don't have no idea what happened. So it's like it's a the black hole. Of the narrative it falls. Those two events I mentioned fall into like the black hole of the narrative. Yeah, I would say that is indeed frustrating. But I I gotta say that it is an interesting experiment in form. Like, we've already talked about how this sort of double-frame narrative with unreliable narration at, like, various different levels is in itself a bit of a formal experiment. One that not everyone, even at the time, really appreciated. It's, um, I'm gonna leave this as my final thought, um, because I did have soba for breakfast this morning, and everyone else in the class still lives in Japan. Wuthering Heights is kind of like natto. It's, if you like it, if you enjoy it somehow, <laughs> then you like it a lot. But it's definitely not to everyone's tastes. And it's very, very much an acquired taste. That might be a really weird analogy. Do we need to tell the listeners what natto is? We could. It's. I mean, they, they could also be not be lazy asses and look it up, but it's... Listeners... It's fermented it's delicious. It's pretty gross. It's, it, yeah, of course. I like it. Uh, yeah, it's it really stringy. Like this is textures. the best part. Yeah. It kind of has a texture of dog snot. Andrew, how do you know what dog snot <laughs> is like is texturally when you're eating it? I only Never mind, don't streets. answer that question. Fucking weird. <laughs> I guess, I, okay, so like, I think a lot of books you can see which what aspects of a book mm -hmm. people would like you know like you could cut like oh this one like, this wasn't really for me but i could see why this but it was just really hard to get into that with withering heights like you're just like i was gonna say especially because a lot of the people who seem to like it seem to like it for reasons that are like did they read the same book 
Yeah, like yeah, it's romantic, right? What? Obsess- yeah, like it does. Like it's gross, not. obsessive love yeah. is romantic. Like there's just those certain passages where you're like, oh, that could be if it wasn't said in this context, you know? Like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that people like the book. People seem to like the characters. Yeah, what's up with that? You know, and write songs about them. Yeah. <laughs> that then Daniel sings sort of nonstop throughout. <laughs> well. Every day. I don't know. If, if a romance story involving a weird, creepy, and obsessed dude is a bad thing, then I guess... Twilight would never would not have been as popular as it is. So I don't know. I yeah. I'm 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 with you in that I don't understand why people like the romance in this novel. It's I kind of um, really wish we had someone on the show who did so they could explain it to us. Okay, I'm gonna take a stab at it. I'm gonna try to put my shoe. I'm gonna try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who enjoys the romance in Wuthering Heights. So first of all, I'm imagining a goth. Just we'll we'll, we'll start with there. Um, I I guess I can see how somebody would appreciate the I'm picturing it the sort of romantic, n- not like small R lovey dovey romantic, but the capital R literary romantic um, idea of just a sublime transcendental love that is so just esoteric that nobody can really put it into words not even the people who are in the throes of it like neither heathcliff nor catherine can really describe the way that they love each other they lack terminology to to really lay out why it is that they have this this eternal unbreakable connection and that at the merest hint of it breaking down is enough to destroy both of them. That just depth of movement and feeling that doesn't have like an everyday way to describe it is very much a hallmark of sort of the romantic movement in art and literature. The idea that there are certain wellsprings of the human emotions and spirit that just cannot be rendered in regular normal speech we can only hint at it through the sublime experience of poetry or art or of nature of wilderness if you're that type of person and you also have like the inexplicable bad boy attraction to like utter dickheads then i guess maybe you would enjoy the romance of catherine and heathcliff in wuthering heights It's sort of tepid praise of it, but I do think that there is something attractive about it. Like, Emmy, I see you making a face right now. Um, pretty much, yeah. A lot of you are making faces when I say that. I don't mean in terms of something we would want for ourselves, or something that we necessarily want to experience in our lives, or even see happening to someone else, but there's a sort of narrative desire to want to see more of this incredibly unimaginable passion that seems so that seems alien to regular human experience it's i guess the the attraction of it is that it is so singular and it instills in the reader a type of sick fascination that you don't know why they feel the way they do but just The intimation of how turbulent those feelings are is, I think, for some people, in itself, enough of a draw that they can sort of, if they don't recognize, if they don't recognize the actual reasons for the love between them, I think that people can still appreciate the sort of emotional catharsis on display. Like, we don't necessarily want to be in Catherine or Heathcliff's shoes, but I think there's a part of us that might yearn to feel that passionately about the person we're in love with. And that, I think, might be... That, I think, might be the draw to people who are really into the romance in Wuthering Heights. I could, t- I could relate to that. Anyway, I just went on a big mm-hmm. long monologue. Any other thoughts from the class? Yeah. I mean, it, it, overall, it was like... I don't think, it, I don't think it's a bad novel is just it's just it's not it's not fun hmm. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's, not, it's not like it's not it's not interesting like not a good novel the things that would normally make 
these sort of the paths that went down interesting just some something just seems something seems off but it's, it's not like there's it's not like there's a lack of depth to it it's just that there's there's a lack of like accessibility i guess um and i don't mean like even in the simple i don't mean in like simplicity i mean just in terms of it's kind of like you got to read me fuck you it's kind of the attitude that i feel it has you know like you know you're 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 living in the 18 late 1840s you got nothing else to do for the next week because you're a rich idle person and computers and netflix hasn't been invented yet i'm all you got baby you got to get to chapter 34 you got no choice just uh yeah yeah i mean like i i had like as i said in my thing i had a lot of fun talking about it with you guys this would have been this book would have been such a drag if i'd not been able to talk about it and I think maybe back in those times, it's like a Netflix show. It's like everyone got a novel and they talked about it. So maybe that's what made it, made it like a, make people interested well, yes. in it. Um, I still don't, yeah, I don't get the people like Emmy talks about, like the Emmy was talking about who seems to like, seem to like just love this book and find romance in it and all these things that I'm like, I think it's completely lacking. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I like that. I like that allusion to people discussing Netflix shows in terms of, novels in in the 19th century private reading of novels started to become the accepted norm in the 19th century but there was still a lot of situations in which novels were read communally like maybe not wuthering heights because i i wouldn't say wuthering heights was tremendously let's say broadly popular it wasn't it wasn't very pulpy Just trying to... it, it was very atmospheric and very heavy as we all know but it would not have been out of the ordinary especially and this is something a lot of especially lower class people like working class people or even just middle class folk who didn't have a whole lot of money to spend on private libraries would rely on lending libraries and some of them would have been by subscription service. Some of them would have been kind of a, you pay a little bit to sort of get the novel for, or get like a volume of a novel for one month, whatever. But just materially, books were more expensive. Like the cost of books relative to the average wage that you could expect to get was, it was a significant investment. And so what some people would have done is they would sort of go in on a subscription to a lending library and they might have like people reading it out loud to sort of the group or they might just have the one copy that then they would read really quickly and then pass to their friends so it would have been a more communal experience to read a novel because you might not necessarily get opportunities to read that many of them and if you and your friends or you and the people that you work with at your old-timey victorian textiles factory or what have you you know, on your Sunday afternoons after church want to unwind, then getting together and communally reading a novel was something much, much more common back then. So hey, orgies were generally frowned upon. So yeah, communal novel reading much more sort of in line, the spirit of the times. I don't remember. I don't have the scholarly sources for that one, but it's my sort of my guess. But yeah, I, I think that's... If we keep in mind that novel reading was a much more social activity in the 19th century than it is for us, then yeah, maybe there is some more pleasure to be had from a novel that is quite this oppressive and depressing, because, I don't know, the misery loves company principle? Anyway, uh, Daniel, I want to give you an opportunity to actually say something about the novel Withering Heights. Yeah, you know, like, I don't think I, honestly, I don't think I hate it, hated it as much as everyone else i just thought it was fine like i mean i wouldn't normally take this long to read a book normally i i would have just read wuthering heights in like one or two sittings i wouldn't have read three chapters at a time and then waited <laughs> several days to do a podcast and then read the next three chapters it's like a weird way to read a book um but it's you know i found it to be a relatively short and easy to read book um I didn't find it particularly hard to follow. I just thought it was somewhat mediocre and probably only brought to its, you know, literary legendary status because of Emily Bronte's sister's work. You know what? That's fair. And the contemporary reviewers said as much. By and large, they all tended to say that Emily Bronte's offering was the weakest of the bunch. 
And yeah, that's fair. I have nothing to add to that. That's. I think it's a perfectly fair interpretation to be lukewarm to, to Wuthering Heights. I was really hoping I could end on some really pithy note, but... Um, I was waiting for it. Yeah, so was my brain, but uh, nothing came out. So, <laughs> in conclusion, Wuthering Heights is a very mixed experience? I don't know. I, know. I mean, to be fair, we could probably spend another 11 episodes, like, talking about other stuff that's going on like there's a lot there's a lot in there like i still feel like i feel like even after 12 episodes for certain things we only like scratch the surface oh it, it offers know. it offers a lot of rich opportunity for discussion like that's yeah. not that's not in question and i think that's why it has survived on literature courses yeah it's it's just weird that it's survived also in the like i mean how many i think 25 movie film adaptations mm. that's what that's what that's what, like, obscure and studied by academics, I would get. But, like, hyper-popular and film adaptations and people thinking it's their favorite novel, it's just a little, that's the part that's weird to me. I don't know. For me, it has to, it, it all comes back to that just violent, romantic passion. Mm. Like, if that's, if that's what you have a taste for, then you're gonna like Wuthering Heights. But, eh. It's not to everyone's tastes, and even during what we call the sort of romantic period in literature, so th this is sort of the other thing to keep in mind when we talk about literary trends, it's not as though these things are monolithic and enjoyed by everyone, at the t even at the time. The romantic sublime had its detractors, even between writers and poets who dipped into the romantic sublime in their own works they would still look at the way other writers wrote about the romantic sublime and just drag it through the mud because it wasn't the right kind of, of violent passion. Like, Byron, for example, everyone knows the term Byronic hero. Heathcliff is sometimes called a Byronic hero, just the sort of... Half man, half machine. Uh, Wait. Oh, uh, fuck you, Andrew. <laughs> The idea of somebody who is sort of dark and mysterious and tortured, but tortured because of a passion which would be noble if not for how horrible and wicked they are, except when they are passionate about the one... That was Byron's whole deal, and that is a certain, let's say, mode of, romantic, of romanticism and literature. But Byron fucking hated Wordsworth. Wordsworth's whole deal was the sublime experience, even in the quietest aspects of, of the natural world, or in the lives of, the, of rustic people of the land who are more in touch with those deep wellsprings of feeling because they do not have the, the ways to describe it except for the natural world around them. So that mode of literature, even for the, the era that spawned it, was kind of spotty in terms of whether people liked it or not. And I think that it's easy for us today to sort of collapse the literature of a period into this sort of monolith. Whereas if you look at, like, if you dig deeply into the the things people were saying about literature from the past, you get an idea of which movements and which modes of literature were contentious even in their day. And as we've discussed, Wuthering Heights, incredibly contentious in its day. Very few early reviewers had good things to say about Wuthering Heights. So yeah, I think that if this book leaves us all kind of at odds, it is a very polarizing book. Now we're going to move on to Miss Charlotte tallying up the points from the previous 11 episodes, all the pop quizzes, and declaring the final teacher's pet. And the final teacher's pet, the prize that we have decided they will get is that for the following season, so season two when we get to it, the pop quiz will be named after the victor of, uh, of this season's overall teacher's pet. So, Miss Charlotte, have you got the totals? And why don't you why don't you read from last place to fourth place, third place, and then first place? So we were like <gasps> between the last two. All right. So I have your final quiz scores tallied. One thing though that I, I do want to mention as I'm reading out these grades, Judy did have two absences, so her score is going to be lower, which. Uh, mm. 
them's the brakes, I guess. Them, them's is the them's are them's. If it's them's, which them's is the brakes. Anyway, so Judy with seventy-seven points over the total of the show. Um, yeah, you are coming in last place. Daniel was third place with ninety-nine point seven five points. Okay, drum roll, please. In first place, with 136 points, is Emmy. Andrew comes in second with 123.3. Now, Emmy, would you like the pop quiz to be named after you? Or would you like to open the briefcase and name it whatever you want? It could be the poopy fart face pop quiz... The shits and giggles, pop quiz, whatever you want. Dealer's choice. <laughs> um, I am not witty enough to come up with anything <laughs> spontaneous. Unless, Daniel, I do choose to open the briefcase if something just com- randomly comes out of your mouth. It's <laughs> too much pressure. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, then we're going to go with the Dr. Emmy Doe Memorial po- the Memorial Pop Quiz <laughs> next season. Well, that concludes our final episode of Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers Season 1. We hope that you'll join us for Season 2 on... See, guys, that sounded totally natural. Um, I'd like to thank Miss Charlotte Sampson for enduring us for 12 whole-ass episodes. Wow. Wow. I would be remiss if I failed to thank my fellow readers, Daniel Wishes, Emmy Doe, and Judy Ito. Daniel, by the way, has his own podcast called Weird Movie Club, which, unlike the show, is not taking a short hiatus to gear up for a second season, so Google that shit now! Weird Movie Club! Thanks to Ryo Namegaya for keeping her shit and my shit together. Also thanks to Akihiro Akane, who composed our theme tune. We have links to him in the show notes. Please check that out. The show is edited by... Hopefully not me at this point, but probably me. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. If you have suggestions, comments, whatever, or if you want to be a future Wayward Reader, or if you want to vote on what book we're doing next, this might be too late, but who cares? Try it anyway. Head on over to waywardreaders.com and leave us a message there. If you want to support the podcast with your hard-earned yen, dollars, pounds, or squirrel pelts, yes, actually a currency used in medieval Russia, head over to the Yokohama Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation. Or leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or the podcast platform of your choice. But the absolute best thing you can do if you enjoyed this season of the show is tell two friends about it. Three friends about it. Well, tell ten, but at least two. Help us get this boat moving. And finally, one last time, thanks to Emily Bronte for introducing Wisht to my vocabulary. Don't forget to read the show notes. See you soon. Class dismissed. Oh, wait, I totally forgot. We're actually coming back one more time to do the movie episode. Uh, Each of us will watch a film version of Wuthering Heights and do a quick review of it for the rest of the class. You should tune in. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. Or third place, second place. Andrew, I just want to interject before Miss Charlotte gives the results. I just want to remind her listeners of the rules. If the person who has the most points wants to trade their points for what's in the briefcase. They have an option. <laughs> oh, what, what briefcase? What? I'm confused. What? Yeah. See, they have to make a phone call to a loved one. To, <laughs> to check with them, they can call the dealer who's sitting in our booth right now, the mystery person who is a celebrity that we will not name, but will be revealed li- at a later time. That's, that's all very confusing. But we actually don't know. Has Miss Charlotte totaled our scores? Um, doing the uh, 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 I got my calculator out. I'm doing it now. Okay, great. We'll have the sound effect here then. But I mean, thank you for filling that dead air, Daniel. The brand of calculator that Miss Charlotte is using for anyone interested at home is, in fact, a Casio calculator. Solar. Actually, it's. It's just the calculator program on Microsoft. Uh, Miss Charlotte, we're actually being sponsored by Casio, so could we just pretend that you're using a Fuck. Casio calculator? I love my Casio calculator.
Uh, it adds, it subtracts, multiplies pretty good. Um, little spotty on division, but you know, Casio, three out of four, ain't bad. This podcast is copyright 2020, the Yokohama Theater Group. Our theme song was written by Akihiro Akane and is used with his permission.